Gunfire, explosions, men with guns now ruling the Sudanese capital. These when news came that militias were once again roaming the streets of the Darfur region of Sudan, I couldn't help but think it must feel like the most horrific deja vu for the people there. Hundreds of civilians have been killed during two months of fighting. Fighter jets thundering across apartment blocks and an international airport engulfed in flames. I was reporting from Darfur almost 20 years ago, and it's hard to find much of a difference between what I was saying in 2004. Planes come over them, drop these bombs that are made of oil drums with shrapnel and explosives inside. And these are not on military bases, but on regular villages. And what we're hearing now. The city of Janina in Darfur, Sudan, has been here before. This is not archive footage of the genocide, which started 20 years ago, though. This was shot on a smartphone yesterday. But there's one corner of the conflict that has changed. The world has become significantly less anonymous for war criminals. This is Nathaniel Raymond, and he's one of a growing number of researchers who are tracking war crimes and violence, like what's going on in Sudan, in almost real time, using satellites. We would then aim satellites into the places that humanitarians and peacekeepers couldn't go. Nathaniel is the executive director of something called the Humanitarian Research Lab, and it uses satellites to monitor humanitarian crises around the world. And the, the fact is data is power. And the story I'm telling here is about how we use that power for the most vulnerable people on the planet. They're using this power to help the people of Sudan who have been facing renewed violence since April. But the story of how they got here and started using satellites to track atrocities is an incredibly unlikely one, involving cell phones and a handsome movie star. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a show about all things cyber and intelligence. We bring you true stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. And today, how Nathaniel Raymond's work spawned an idea that's made its way around the globe and into space. What he's created is making not just humanitarian aid easier to deliver, but war crimes harder to commit, including those unfolding in Sudan right now. Now there's a higher chance, if you are operating both day and night, um, something is going to pick up a tell that you were there. AI machines. Satellite. Engine ignition. Click here. And lift off. Stay with us. In Norway, a woman's boyfriend forgets who she is overnight. In Detroit, a man is arrested, but he was never at the crime scene. In Spain, disturbing pictures of young girls have appeared, and no one knows who's behind them. Something strange is happening. A collision between people and artificial intelligence. Discover more in The Guardian's new series, Black Box. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes, Monday and Thursdays. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. 
Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Back in 2005, Nathaniel was working for Oxfam, a charity that focuses on global poverty. And he found himself posted in Biloxi, Mississippi, helping survivors of Hurricane Katrina. And he noticed something troubling. We were on the peninsula in a primarily African-American community around the Division Street Baptist Church. And I observed that there was almost no federal or state assistance making it onto the peninsula. But meanwhile, over on the less affected, primarily white side of town, there was a significant amount of aid. There were probably lots of reasons why this was, but the one that he started to zoom in on was something he calls digital visibility. In the weeks and months after Hurricane Katrina, aid organizations were using cell phone data to track where people were. And while that was a useful place to start, it ended up missing a whole cohort of people who really needed their help. Basically, the white population was more visible to responders. They had cell phones, they had cars where they could charge those cell phones, and that there were less barriers for that population to be connected than the African-American population that had few cell phones. Nathaniel started thinking, there has to be a different way to use technology to distribute aid in a way where it went to the neediest, not just the most visible. He thought a good place to start was with this then-nascent program called Google Earth. Google Earth tracks where anyone and everyone lives. It doesn't discriminate against the digitally invisible. Um, we could have a common operational picture to basically map communities that would be at risk of being digitally invisible and try to make them more hyper-legible. Nathaniel wrote a whole paper laying out his idea, and he sent it to Google. And then, well, crickets. Nothing. Not until five years later, in 2010, when sort of out of the blue, the memo resurfaced in the most unexpected way. His nerdy idea had caught the attention of one of the most famous actors on the planet. Please state your name for the record. Daniel Ocean. You have been implicated in over a dozen other confidence schemes and frauds. What do you think you would do if released? I don't know. How much do you guys make a year? George Clooney. His people contacted Nathaniel to say, we read your paper. We want to talk. We have an idea of how we might make this work. George Clooney and a large part of the cast of Ocean's Eleven, Matt Damon, Don Cheadle, Brad Pitt, want you to build what was in that memo. George Clooney had recently launched an NGO focused on Sudan, specifically Darfur. And he'd had an epiphany of his own, and it had to do with the 1994 genocide in Rwanda. Now the human disaster in Rwanda has also reached the shores of Africa's Great Lake. Every day, thousands of bodies are floating down the Kagera River. The violence there ended after 100 days because the world watched it happen. There were news crews and wrenching photographs in the newspapers. And that visibly forced world leaders to step in. And the perpetrators had to stop the violence. But with the genocide in Sudan, there was almost no coverage. 
In fact, for the longest time, there was just one known photograph of a Janjaweed, one of the Arab militiamen on horseback that were torching villages. And that lack of visibility created a kind of immunity. By the time news of the violence had reached the outside world, the flames had burned out and the perpetrators were long gone. This United Nations camp was supposed to be temporary. But after more than three years of a brutal civil war, people continued to flock here for safety. Clooney's NGO wanted to take the lessons of Rwanda and apply them to Sudan. In Sudan, the places where the massacres were occurring were just too remote. Journalists would have to wander the vast sands of West Darfur, trying to be in the exact right place at the exact right time. It's almost impossible. But not impossible for satellites, he realized. Satellites could cover a lot of ground in one picture. And they wanted Nathaniel to take his favorite technology, satellites, and operationalize the idea he'd sent in that memo to Google so many years before. And when George Clooney asks you to build something to save the people of Darfur, well, you build it. Nathaniel and his team went to work trying to figure out not just how to use satellites to catch perpetrators in the act, but maybe even prevent their attacks from happening in the first place. The theory was that we could not only document attacks against civilians in near real time, but we could see when and where the Sudan Armed Forces or other actors might attack civilian communities ahead of time. Not on our watch gave Nathaniel the seed money he needed to create something he called the Satellite Sentinel Project. They would find a satellite, point it in the direction of a conflict, and then marry the images from space with intelligence gathered on the ground. They'd created a kind of open-source intelligence with a low-orbit twist. And while that kind of thing is more common now, it was just getting started back then. And of course, this isn't cheap. Back then, a single satellite image cost thousands of dollars. Nathaniel got a satellite company called Digital Globe to agree to donate images and then show his team how to analyze them. And the images started to pour in. They'd get a new one every 24 to 36 hours. And then they'd use them to try to connect the dots. They'd start with something they thought might be happening, and then they'd see where it led them. For example, they heard the Sudanese government forces used a Soviet-era airplane to barrel bomb remote villages. So they figured if they looked for the planes in the satellite images and then followed them, it would lead them to the very thing that they were really looking for, signs of a bombing. So they did that and then added some arts and crafts. It was done entirely manually uh, to the point where we even used string <laughs> um, markers on a laminated map in rulers to plot flight directions of bombers. Did it look like something out of A Beautiful Mind? It, it looked like uh, something out of a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> you know, it looked like uh, a kid had opened up their pencil case and basically had started sketching on a map and, and using string um, to uh, do radial plotting of operational ranges of Antonovs and Sukhoi ground strike fighters and MiGs. And the more they did this work, the more they learned. 
sometimes the hard way. And there was this one moment early on in Sudan where we thought we saw this massive amount of dismounted infantry moving through a mountain pass towards a village. They look like soldiers grouped together, walking at a marching pace. And we get all bent out of shape about it. And a colleague of ours, a satellite imagery company, we bring in to have a second opinion. He's like, gentlemen, you just got yourself a herd of cows. (laughs) (laughs) They were longhorn cattle. The lesson? Your pictures are only as good as your analysis and the intelligence that told you where to focus. Otherwise, you'd find yourself tracking cattle migration instead of conflicts. (laughs) And, And so... You can have all the technology in the world, but if you don't understand the contextual anthropology of the pattern of life, you actually don't know what you're looking at. So they picked up another skill. They learned to predict what armies and militias were likely to target and then build their investigations from there. They were going to destroy infrastructure. Where would they be heading and how were they likely to get there? Which was as much about taking high-resolution photographs from space as it was about understanding history and culture. Everyone focuses on the satellites, but at the end of the day, what we do is really at the intersection of technology and anthropology. Uh, Understanding how um, populations behave um, is critical to being able to detect patterns of certain groups and ways in which those patterns are changing. So Nathaniel and his team started digging into Sudanese history. They pored over anthropological texts from the 1930s and the 1950s. They studied the movements of some of the prominent ethnic groups in West Darfur, cross-referencing historical patterns with present-day events. Then they added a dash of on-the-ground reporting, some social media data, and they found that, taken together, it helped them decide where to focus their satellites. And even with all that, sometimes knowing where to point your satellite isn't enough because it turns out sophisticated technologies buzzing around in space fall prey to something we're also at the mercy of here on Earth, the weather. Consider the time that Nathaniel and his team had been watching Tensions Mountain, southern Sudan. To provide a little context first, the government had been targeting local tribes there. And one day there's an announcement made. Everyone in the city is supposed to gather at a soccer stadium. This is Caitlin Howarth, director of operations for Nathaniel's lab. The folks in the city essentially say, uh, absolutely not. We have seen this movie. We don't gather at the soccer stadium. We're going to get the heck out of here. So instead of going to the soccer stadium where they were sure bad things would happen, the local residents fled to a UN peacekeeping base north of the city. Thousands of people gathered there, outside the locked gates. Nathaniel and the team could see it, right there on their screens. And then they noticed something more sinister. Militias were starting to move in on the crowds. They'd used the UN mission as a honey trap, knowing that the announcement telling everybody to go to the soccer stadium would draw the city's population to the UN mission. Those people were exactly where the murderers intended for them to be. It was a kill box. Nathaniel's team was monitoring all of this, and now that violence appeared imminent, they wanted to make sure their satellites documented it to hold people accountable. So they pointed their camera in the sky at the camp, and then... The clouds came in. And the satellites just clicked off. They went dark. 
And when clouds come in, satellites have a masking out where they will shut off to conserve memory space if the cloud content is too high. I've said many times of that moment that I quoted Rilke to the team. Rainier Rilke, like the poet. Il pleure dans mon corps. It is raining in my heart. And um, it it was raining during that time in Cambridge, and it was raining in Sudan. When we come back, the team finds a human solution to a very technical problem. This is Click Here. We'll be right back. What if someone you love asks you to help them die? What would you say? This is the powerful question at the heart of the ultimate choice. The series follows the journey of Michael and his wife Anne as they grapple with his request to choose the way he wants to die. I'm Rob Cribb, and through their story, I learned a lot about my own family. I hope the show is a way to start conversations many of us want to have, but rarely do. The Ultimate Choice is out now. Before the break, Nathaniel Raymond and his team were watching what they expected was a massacre unfolding from half a world away. And then the cloud cover came in. They felt helpless. Local sources on the ground told them what was happening that they couldn't see. A individual who our colleagues at Enough had named Job, he would come out at night and there would be dogs, he said, carrying around body parts of his neighbors. On the ground, Job saw piles of bodies and mass graves. While the eyewitness accounts were detailed and incriminating, the team knew that they needed more than that to hold the perpetrators to account. They needed photographic proof, something that, unlike a memory, wouldn't fade in the fullness of time. They wanted a photograph of the graves themselves. And that's when we had an amazing technological breakthrough. Well, technology and good old-fashioned mapping skills. They heard reports that the militia had dug mass graves to the south of a nearby school, but they didn't know exactly where to look. So they went retro. They took out a piece of paper, drew an alphanumeric grade on top of the latest picture they had of the area, and then sent it to their contact on the ground, this guy named Job. Job looked at this grid and then started giving additional coordinates. He said, the school is by B6. And then we would zoom in and send another image that was closer. And then he would look at that and he would do the grid again and say it was E3 or something to that effect. So that was a start, but still not precise enough. And so we had to ask Job to walk toe to heel in the middle of the night from a radio tower down to the grave because we had to get the distance correct for the shot. And he did Job didn't have a tape measure, but he did have the next best thing, his feet. He measured the distance, heel to toe, from a radio tower they could see to the mass graves they couldn't. But those clouds, well, they still hovered. So Nathaniel begged the satellite company to override the system and leave the satellite cameras on. And then all they could do was wait. Finally, the clouds parted, and the picture was snapped. And... When the shot came in, it was three soccer field-sized graves. Combined with Job's eyewitness testimony, with a leaked report from UN human rights monitors at the peacekeeping base, we were able to meet our standards of having 
imagery corroboration to an eyewitness with a second source. They've got it. Evidence. Proof of what happened that was admissible in a court of law. And courts are using this kind of evidence. Kenneth Scott is a former senior prosecutor at the International Criminal Tribunal at The Hague. And he confirmed that the work Nathaniel and people like him do is critical to building war crimes cases. So it's become a very, very powerful and, and still new, still relatively new source of evidence in war crimes prosecutions, but a very important one. This cocktail of human analysts and open source intelligence is helping him make war crimes cases stick. And so when you marry up things posted on social media with satellite imagery and with the geolocation, and the other tools that are available, we were able to drill down and actually get uh, images of burned out vehicles and the locations of attacks and some very, very important evidence. Just in the past year, he said satellite imagery and geolocation and social media posts helped him build a case against militias who were attacking humanitarian convoys in South Sudan. And everyone involved was happy that they were piercing that shield of impunity that had characterized the violence in Sudan for so long. But Nathaniel and his team weren't stopping there. They wanted to not just document attacks, but find ways to prevent them or at least blunt their brutality, which meant digging deeper into patterns that might help them predict future events. As they cross-referenced and studied and read, they did start to see ways to connect the dots, data points. They began to tell a story, and that story um, allowed us to be more and more predictive as the time went on. Like back in the spring of 2011, Nathaniel and his team had been tracking the movements of the Sudanese armed forces around the city of Abye. It's an oil-rich, fertile area that straddles the border between North and South Sudan. And the area is crawling with militia. And the team had heard about a series of arson attacks in nearby villages. So they kept scanning satellite images looking for who might be responsible. And so what we were looking for is HETs, heavy equipment transports, which they used to bring the tanks in. And then we looked for pre-positioning of the tanks and other assets. Two to three weeks out, we had seen enough to know that these initial arson attacks were preface moves to a larger strike on Abye. Nathaniel called his bosses to say that it looked like the Sudanese forces were preparing to attack. And then a remarkable thing happened. They were able to warn people on the ground, to spread the word that it looked like the military was preparing to move in so people knew to leave or at least prepare. And then I was at a friend's wedding, and it was Friday night on Memorial Day weekend, and the call came in that it had begun. The thing they predicted might happen was happening, which they confirmed. And once we got shots over Abye, we could see tank treads everywhere. We could see that they had blown the bridge out of Abye after civilians had run across it. And we could also see looting of the World Food Program and of houses. And you could see the looted material on the back of the trucks. And it was the Miseria driving north with their spoils of war. This was a big change. This wasn't about attacks after they'd happened. This was predictive analysis. And what was incredible about that moment is that we had gotten ahead of it enough. Um, we issued a human security alert and we said, Abye is about to be attacked. And there were people at that time who thought we were crying wolf, but we were correct. They managed to do exactly what they'd hoped. 
In addition to documenting the tragic events, they were able to mitigate its effects as well. It went from hypothetical theory that we could do this to we had now caught an attack before it happened. We did the stuff that was once only the province of the CIA and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. For security reasons, Kaylin and Nathaniel weren't allowed to provide many specifics about what they've seen since the team started monitoring Sudan anew this past year. But in general, they say they were observing attacks on critical infrastructure, water treatment facilities, humanitarian convoys, targets that feel both ruthless and familiar. I mean, it's, it's poignant for us, for many of us who have worked on Sudan now 13 years. On um, one hand, it's tragic that we are still doing this. Literally, there's some of us that have looked at these locations for so long in such detail that we have a joke about one of our imagery analysts that we could blindfold him and he could walk from Omdurman to Khartoum with his eyes closed. <laughs> but they were armed with new allies this time. On June 9th of this year, the State Department announced that they were partnering with Nathaniel's lab to monitor the war in Sudan. Here's Caitlin Howarth again. We're in a very different position as a team this time. Working directly with the State Department means we have a level of access that we only could have imagined the last time that we did this. Also, they have new tools. For example, an algorithm they repurposed from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Originally designed to count craters on the moon, Nathaniel's team is using it to count tukuls, those traditional conical huts that dot the Darfur landscape. Now the algorithm can recognize when a Tuchel appears to be on fire and alert the team. And all these things, the allies, the technology, gives them hope that maybe these episodes of violence can stop. Technology is important, but it isn't what it's really about. At the end of the day, it's about seeing human beings, um, uh, not in new ways, but hopefully in ways that make us act different and teach us to outgrow our madness. This is Click Here. Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence stories of the past week. The FBI appears to have shuttered the English-language cybercrime marketplace Breach Forums. The Bureau said on Thursday that it had seized the marketplace's domain name. The announcement comes some three months after arresting the man thought to be the site's administrator. His name is Connor Brian Fitzpatrick, and he was picked up in March by the FBI in Peekskill, New York. It appears that the FBI was able to access the back end of the Breach Forum servers, perhaps through Fitzpatrick's account. The new administrator of Breach Forum said he was going to close everything down. Cybersecurity experts at Checkpoint say they've chased a cyber incident that occurred at a European hospital back to Chinese military hackers. Checkpoint said the hospital was inadvertently infected with malware from an infective USB drive. They say that a Chinese-backed threat actor known as Camaro Dragon is behind the malware, and it came about in a roundabout way from the hacking group's efforts to hack into Southeast Asian governments and institutions. Checkpoint said incident responders discovered that an employee of the European hospital that got infected attended a conference in Asia and conducted a presentation with another attendee. That person's laptop was infected with WISP Writer, 
a powerful malware that can not only bypass antivirus solutions and establish backdoors into a system, but also spreads itself to newly connected removable drives. When the hospital employees shared their USB with the person they were presenting with, it became infected. The employee returned to their hospital in Europe, plugged in the USB, and then spread the infection to the hospital's computer systems. And finally, the Department of the Treasury imposed sanctions Friday on two Russian intelligence officers who allegedly played a significant role in the Kremlin's attempts to interfere with elections, both here in the U.S. and globally. The two men were part of a network recruited by the Russian Federal Security Service, or FSB, to support Kremlin-directed influence operations against the U.S. and its allies. The Department of Justice had previously indicted the two men, and sanctions would now freeze any assets the two hold in the U.S. and prohibit financial transactions with them. I'm Dina Templerest. I'm the executive producer and host of the show. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director. Will Jarvis is our producer. And Sarah Wyman is our writer-reporter. Our editing team is led by Karen Duffin and Lou Wolkowski. Darren Ancrum does our fact-checking. And our theme and original music compositions are by Ben Levingston. We also use music from Blue Dot Sessions. And we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, or send us an email at clickhere at recordedfuture.com. Check out our website with details about our shows and our whole show catalog at clickhereshow.com. That's a wrap for this week. I'm Dina Templerest. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.